Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures tonight. So let me invite you to grab your Bibles and find your way to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're new to the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. So utilize that resource at the very beginning of the Bible to find the book of Hebrews. And when you get into the book of Hebrews, the really big numbers in bold are the chapters. Find your way to chapter 11 and the little numbers that are attached to sentences and little little portions of what's written there. Those are called the verses. And so find your way to Hebrews chapter 11. And when you get there, hang out in verse 32 as that's the start of where we're going to be diving into here in a few moments. But before we do that, I'm going to ask for one more. I'm going to ask God one more time to give us grace as we look into the scriptures. God, would you give us grace now as we um, turn our attention to to your word? I pray that you would open up our minds to understand your scriptures, open up our hearts to receive your scriptures. And Holy Spirit, apply the scriptures to our lives so that we might be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus and be the men and women of faith that you have called us to be in the world that is as we anticipate the world that is to come. God, we love you and we pray your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps one of the biggest threats to your life of faith may be described by the word disillusionment. I believe disillusionment is the biggest threat, if not, it is a major threat, if not one of the biggest threats to the life of faith. You see, when we talk about disillusionment, we're talking about that that experience we have when that which we expect from something is contradicted by our experience with that something. And when our expectations are contradicted by our experiences, disillusionment arises, And disillusionment kind of runs in the wake of what's left behind when there is a gap between what we expect and what we experience. Each of you know this to be true in your own life, I'm sure, because you've watched commercials. You've seen advertisements that have elevated your expectations about a certain product. And perhaps they did it successfully, so you went right out after watching that commercial and purchased that product and came home to use it, thinking it would do for you what what you hope it would do for you, or it would operate as advertised, but then your experience with what you purchased just left much to be desired. Back in the day, I was a sucker for infomercials. I would spend too much time watching infomercials just wrapped up in the products that those commercials would be advertising and trying to get you to purchase, and and I bought a couple of things. The most memorable one was a magic bullet. If you remember the magic bullet, there was a time when I would watch that commercial and I was so enthralled by how easy it seemed to use and all the things that it could do. So I said, I've got to have the magic bullet. So I went out and I purchased one, brought it home. I was excited. My expectations were high. I popped open the box, pulled it out, plugged it in. I decided I was going to make me a, a quick smoothie and it was supposed to be magical, a quick magical experience. So I plugged it in and got ready to make my first smoothie, but the threads... Uh, from the lid didn't quite line up with the threads on the actual device. And so I loaded all the fruit and everything inside the magic bullet, but the moment I turned it on, everything just went haywire. It threw smushed bananas everywhere. It, it, It was a messy experience. And as I was wiping smushed bananas from my face, I, I began to experience disillusionment because I had these expectations that were contradicted by an experience, and disillusionment then swelled in the wake. 
You see, I believe this happens so often in the life of faith. You may be a man or a woman who's come to faith in Jesus, and as you stepped into your relationship with Jesus, you've brought in certain expectations. You've brought certain expectations to the table, and as you've carried those expectations in, perhaps your journey with Jesus thus far, you, you feel like those expectations aren't being met. And there may be in some way, shape, or form a contradiction between what you expect from your life of faith and from following Jesus and what you're actually, actually experiencing. You see, some people come to the table and they believe that if they put their faith in Jesus, then everything about life is going to be easy breezy from that point forward. Lollipops and candy canes, that, that's the life of faith with Jesus. And so they have this assumption and this expectation that Jesus will suddenly make life easier. Jesus will suddenly make life simpler. Jesus will suddenly make life better as, as it's defined by your particular expectations and thoughts about what is better than what you've had before. But then there's a flip side of that where some come to the table in their relationship with Jesus and they may not come from that perspective. Perhaps they they fall on the other end of the spectrum and they think that, well, if I put my faith in Jesus, then that must mean that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to face a steady stream of opposition in my life all the time. And so they come into their relationship with Jesus with their teeth clenched and their teeth are clenched so tightly that they never smile because they're singing with Tupac, you know, it's me against the world. And they're just swimming upstream. That's a 90s reference. I know most of you aren't there, but, but that was a 90s reference. Swimming upstream, expecting one thing and experiencing another. When that happens, disillusionment, disillusionment can arise. And I think that's one of the biggest threats to the life of faith. And what I want us to do this evening is I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 11. Because what you're going to find in the passage that was just read for us a moment ago is that this passage brings a brilliant balance to the life of faith. A brilliant balance found in verses 32 through 40 of showing us what we can and should expect as we live our lives by faith. And this expectation is seasoned with a brilliant balance. You see, in Hebrews chapter 11, as we kind of get to this passage in the chapter, the pace of it picks up a bit. The pace begins to quicken, and in verses 32 through 40, a wide swath of redemptive history is covered quite quickly. A lot of ground is covered in a very short amount of time. And as we look at this passage, I want to take it all together in kind of one shot tonight because I think if we break it apart, we're going to miss the balance that we're intended to see in this text. Because there is a balance found when you compare verses 32 through 35 with verses 35 through 38. A remarkable balance that is tied to this life of faith. And what you begin to discover is that the life of faith is, if it's anything, it is a journey of contrasts. The life of faith is a journey of contrasts. And unless that reality sinks into our souls, we risk disillusionment in our discipleship. We won't be able to make sense of the messiness of life in a broken world. We won't be able to process the goodness of God when things begin to get hard or when life doesn't unfold the way we might expect. We won't be able to process and rest in the goodness of God unless we allow this passage to bring some balance to our faith. The Christian life, the life of faith, it consists of both highs and lows. It consists of both obvious victories 
and apparent defeats. The Christian life is a journey of contrast, both and, not either or. And if you and I can't embrace the both and, we're going to have a hard time following Jesus through the world as it is now. And we're not going to rightly anticipate the wonder of what is to come. You see, a balanced faith, it has this uncanny ability of celebrating what should be celebrated in the Christian life where we celebrate the highs, but a balanced faith also knows how to expect and endure the lows. That we're not surprised when things go bad or things go haywire in our lives. A balanced faith can celebrate the highs and expect and endure the lows, all the while believing that whatever God has promised his people, that the future he has in store for us is going to be better than all of it. That it will be better than the highest high and the lowest low in this world. And I think this is what this passage is ultimately calling our attention to. So let's look at verses 32 through 35. Because here you begin to find a series of allusions to a variety of stories. And they're all strung together. And the one thing that each of these stories hold in common is that each of them are stories of men and women who experience the immediate triumph of God. That God in his grace does some miraculous things on behalf of his people to deliver them from real-time struggles and real-time opposition. They're remarkable stories that are worth celebrating, that glorify the power of God and the activity of God in the world on behalf of his people. And so you have these high moments when against all odds, God comes through. He comes through and blesses the men and women who are living by faith in these circumstances. You look at some of the names that are listed here, and we'll just survey some of the stories. You consider the story of Gideon and Barak. Those are a couple of guys who have, whose stories are kind of similar in the sense that in both cases, God, God perfected his power in their weaknesses. You have the story of Gideon, who was essentially a frightened farmer, and God called this frightened, insecure farmer to lead a small band of soldiers in war against a powerful Midianite army. And he was afraid to do that. He was scared to do that. He, he hesitated obeying what God was calling him to do. But yet, yet when he did, when he exercised faith, God came through for him in a miraculous way. It's very similar to what goes down in Barak's life. Barak was a guy who took two uh, soldiers from two of the 12 tribes of Israel because This uh, Canaanite army had come up against them, and they were threatening the people of God. And and so Barak takes about 10,000 soldiers drawn from two of the 12 tribes, and he goes out to meet this Canaanite commander in battle. And standing behind this singular, singular commander was about 900 chariots of iron. And what the Bible describes as a myriad of soldiers. A myriad is a lot more than 10,000 I don't know how many, but it's a lot more than 10,000. And in that moment, Barak was tempted to shrink back. He was tempted to uh, go a different way or maybe give in to the pressure that this Canaanite army was putting upon the people. But ultimately, he exercised faith. He trusted his God, and his God came through for him, bringing immediate deliverance to he and the people of Israel. In both stories, God did this despite Despite the fact that both Gideon and and Barak were insecure, both Gideon and Barak were doubtful, both both Gideon and Barak were fearful, God came through despite their insecurities. But then you drop down to the couple of other names that are listed there, Samson and Jephthah. 
what you see in kind of their stories is God overcoming, a, a willingness of God to overcome their immorality by his grace. These were two guys who, on many levels, should have disqualified themselves from experiencing the power of God in their day. But because God is a gracious God, and because there was faith operating in the deep recesses of their souls, God still came through, and he worked miracles. You consider Samson. Samson was a guy who gave in to Delilah's advances, and when he did, he, he forsook his vow, and he disobeyed God, and he lost the strength that God supplied him with, and he lost his strength, and he also was struck blind, and suddenly Samson, this mighty warrior that everybody was intimidated by, that everyone was afraid of, this mighty warrior found himself the weakest he'd ever been. And so he's weak, and the Philistine army is encroaching, and he's lost his strength, he's in his weakest moment, but yet there's still this, sub this subterranean faith still present deep within him. And a subterranean substance of faith began to well up even in his weakest moment. And in a moment of faith, he prayed, asking God, would you help me one more time? Would you give me strength? Would you come through for me? And God gracefully did. And he restored Samson's strength and delivered the people of Israel from the Philistine army. But then you consider Jephthah. Jephthah, too, was a person whose morality could be questioned. He was one who would make or did make a foolish and rash vow, one that actually cost him his daughter's life. But yet even with Jephthah, God comes through when he exercised just a little bit of faith and he was called back to lead the people of Israel in battle and once again be delivered from their, the encroaching enemies. You see, in both of those stories, we get this remarkable picture of how God's grace often works through us, despite of us, that God's grace works through us, despite of us, and that's incredibly good news for a guy like me. And I believe it's incredibly good news for, for people like you. This is why in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, there's a moment when the prophet is explaining this to the people of Israel, and he gets after this dynamic, and listen to what he says. He says, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. It's not for your sake in the sense that it's not because you are deserving or because you are worthy. No, he goes on to say, I'm going to act for my holy name. I'm going to act for my glory. I'm going to act because I'm going to stay true to who I am as a good, graceful God who's made promises he's going to keep. And he tells this to the people of Israel, and right after that he says, my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Meaning you're not deserving of what I'm going to do on your behalf. But because God is a God who works by grace through the faith of his people, the people of Israel benefited greatly, and people like you and I continue to benefit from that dynamic. But then you consider some of the other stories listed here. You have David mentioned, and you have Samuel and the prophets. In both of those instances, you find God honoring his word in their obedience you consider the story of David, you know that he was a young shepherd boy when he showed up on the battle scene and he had no military experience. And when he showed up at that scene, there was a guy by the name of Goliath, a really big dude who was frightening everyone, standing out on the field, calling Israel out and nobody would go out to face him. All the proven soldiers were shrinking back in fear, including King Saul. And yet the moment David shows up, he says, wait a minute, I know my God, I know what he's told us. And and so he says, I'm going to act on that. So he says, I'll go meet him. So he runs out onto the battlefield. And when he arrives, he, when he approaches Goliath, he says something like this. He says, you know, it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. 
for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And as David kind of voiced that and he was viewing how this giant was standing between the people of God and the promises of God, he lived by faith in that moment, stuck true to the word of God and God showed himself faithful. And that giant was slain. But then you consider Samuel as well. Samuel and the prophets, these were a group of of people who delivered hard words to a proud people. They They delivered hard truths to people who didn't want to hear it. They warned people of God's judgment. They encouraged people of God's grace. They delivered words to people who weren't always receptive and weren't always responsive, but they held true, and and God was faithful to them all the while. And so what you begin to see is you take all these stories into consideration. You begin to see how God, by grace, he perfects his power in our weaknesses. By grace, God overcomes our immorality. And by grace, God honors his word in the midst of our obedience. He's a God we can trust and we can put our faith in. But then also mentioned here, we won't go into as much detail in these, but you consider some of the other stories that are referenced here. When it talks about how how these people of faith stopped the mouths of lions, that's a reference to Daniel in the lion's den. This idea of quenching the fire, that's recalling the moment when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered from the fiery furnace. And then in verse 35, you have this remarkable moment where women received back their dead by resurrection. That's a pretty triumphant thing for a woman to lose her child and yet that child be brought to life. That's immediate triumph. That's glory. That's grace. That's incredible power. And so the one thing all of these stories have in common between verses 32 through 35 is this dynamic that each and every one of them experienced immediate triumph in the face of some intense opposition. They were in situations that they needed God to come through desperately, and by faith, they trusted God, and God did. These stories all end on a high note. These are the highest of highs, right? These are the types of stories that Hollywood movies are made of. These are the movies we want to see on the big screen. These are the stories we want to read. These are the stories that we want to gravitate towards. And, And because of that, some of you may be thinking, well, because these are so grandiose in their scope and they're so these big moments of God coming through and delivering his people who live by faith, you may be thinking, well, that's great for them. Their quality of faith may have been exceptional. That their quality of faith was, was extraordinary. And you might be selling yourself short thinking, I'll never reach those levels. I'll never experience God's power in my life in this world because my faith will never match the faith of those men and women. And if that's your temptation, if you're going there in your mind and you're thinking tonight, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you and remind you that God is not looking and he never has been looking for a perfect faith. He's not looking for your faith to be perfect. He just wants your faith to be present. God is not looking for a sophisticated faith. He's looking for a simple faith. God is not looking for a flawless faith. He's looking for a functional faith. That's the type of faith you see operating in all the stories that are present that we just mentioned. This is why John Calvin, when he's summarizing these stories, he would write this. He would say, there, is no, there was none of them whose faith did not falter. He said, Gideon was slower than he need have been to take up arms, and it was only with difficulty that he ventured to commit himself to God. Barak hesitated at the beginning. Samson was the victim of the enticements of his mistress and thoughtlessly betrayed the safety of himself and of all his people. 
Jephthah rushed headlong into making a foolish vow and was, was overly obstinate in performing it and thereby marred a fine victory by the cruel death of his daughter. And you and I could add a couple to that. You, you could add that later, David, what did he do? David would later commit adultery and murder. You would consider Samuel's life. If you know anything about Samuel's story, you, you may know that Samuel struggled. He struggled and was somewhat of a careless dad. He wasn't very attentive to his children at times. So you have these all these stories, there's flaws in the faith of all the ones who were presented to us in this passage. Yet as Calvin would later conclude, he would say, in every saint there is always to be found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. Don't you love that? Your faith may be imperfect and incomplete, but that doesn't mean you're less approved by God. There is no reason, therefore, why the fault from which we labor should break us or discourage us, provided we go on by faith in the race of our calling. In other words, God empowers his people by grace through faith, not a faith that is perfect, but a faith that is present. And what that means is that such empowerment is available to each and every one of us. You can experience the power of God in your life in real time as you journey through this world. You can experience it. It is available to you. And so what we want to think about then is the power of faith. You see, the power of faith is not intrinsic to faith itself. This is very important. The power of faith is not intrinsic. The power of faith is extrinsic. Meaning the power of faith does not rest inside faith. The power of faith rests outside of faith. It is determined by whatever you attach your faith to. You might think of it this way. You go to the store because some light bulbs went out in your home and you walk down the aisle to find some light bulbs and you come across this this shelf and on this shelf there are all kinds of different light bulbs of all different shapes and sizes and there are different there's different wattages in each one of these light bulbs. Some are 60 watts, others are 15 watts. And, and you begin to see and think, what do I need? What, what would be best for my house? And, and what you're looking at when you're looking at a light bulb in a box is you're seeing a lot of potential. You're seeing a lot of potential, but you're also seeing something that's utterly powerless until it is attached to a socket. And it is attached to a power source that can cause it to come alive and cause it to shine. That's essentially what we're talking about. The life of faith is only as powerful as the object of our faith, is what we're putting our faith in. When we are attached to or synced in with a power source. And in all of these stories that we're reading about, all these men and women, all, although very, they had all different watts, as it will, as different watts to their faith, each of them put their faith in the greatness of God and the greatness of God came through for them in miraculous, miraculous ways. They all had that in common and God in his grace came through and delivered them from what was assailing them at that time. And let me ask you, what, what might be assailing you right now? What might be assailing you in your life right now? And if you're being assailed by something, if there's something standing between you and your realization or your experience of the promises of God, it is possible for you to experience breakthrough. 
It is possible for for you to live by faith in the power of God's grace and witness God's real-time intervention, his real-time deliverance from real struggles. And when you do, understand that those moments are worth celebrating. They're worth celebrating. I, I can't help but think of my friend Liz. There was a time in Liz's life when she received a death sentence from her doctor. She had ovarian cancer and was told by her doctor that she only had a couple of weeks to live. And when word reached everyone that this was her situation, we uh, friends rallied around her, and as we did, we as her friends did, placed hands upon her and began to pray in faith for her healing. Now it was an in- interesting scene because there were some in the room who prayed with, uh, with uh, they, they prayed boldly, high wattage faith, so to speak, sixty watts. But then there were others who prayed uh, somewhat more sheepishly. More like 15 watts or something like that. And they were all praying for her and everyone desired her healing. And they, were, they believed in varying degrees that God could heal her. Spent a night praying over her for a few hours. And then a couple of days later, Liz went to the doctor. And when the doctor examined her body, he was dumbfounded. There wasn't a trace of cancer in her body in that checkup. It was completely gone. What happened in that moment? I believe God intervened in real time. I believe God showcased his power and healed Liz of her cancer. And when word reached everyone, you better believe we celebrated. We celebrated that high. We were excited about it. We thanked God for it. And it remains today as a high watermark in my life of faith. And I believe that you too may witness the miraculous in your life. I believe you can experience God's power coming through for you in ways that may surprise you, but ultimately shouldn't. Because you should know the kind of God that you serve and the kind of God that we worship together who sent his son Jesus to live and to die and to what? Rise again. This Jesus who would then give his Holy Spirit to his people to empower them and to enable them to live by faith. And as we do, we should expect to see God do things that cause us to celebrate. We should not be surprised when God takes words from our mouth when we're talking to a friend and he uses those words to shore up a friend's faith that is floundering. We should not be surprised when we speak words of Jesus into the life of someone who's not yet believing in Jesus and suddenly their dead heart awakens. We should not be surprised when you take your modest offerings of your time, your talents, and your treasures. You offer them up to God by faith and he takes all of your offerings and he multiplies them to bless many, many, many people. We should not be surprised when God comes through because that's the type of God that we trust in. And our God is powerful enough to do anything in this world. And so we live by faith. We trust in that God. We recognize that that is is an aspect of our faith in Christ. However, however, With that being said and with that being affirmed and with that being true, let's not assume. Let's not assume that if such help doesn't come, let's not assume that if such help doesn't come that all of a sudden God is less concerned or all of a sudden God is less involved or all of a sudden God is less affirming of your faith. Let's not live by that assumption either. 
You see, that is an assumption that comes out of the heart that is imbalanced. It characterizes a faith that is imbalanced and, I would add, unbiblical. A faith that says, look, uh, it, it comes out of a faith that risks disillusionment because, and this type of faith is quite common. There are some who say that if, if you have enough faith and you can do anything, meaning if you can just rally enough faith, then all of life will be one steady experience of God's triumphant grace and Him doing the miraculous in your life. There, there are some who say if you just claim the name of Jesus enough, you claim it hard enough, then you can heal any disease. Or if you claim the name of Jesus enough, then you can avoid any discomfort or any struggle or any suffering. There are some who say if you claim the name of Jesus, then all the desires of your heart can and will be fulfilled. That is your desire for health. That is your desire to be married. That is your desire for a prosperous career. That is your desire for this, that, or the other. There are some who say that if you live by faith, then you can expect that all the time. You can assume it, so to speak. But we want to be careful with that assumption for lots of reasons. Because that opens your heart up to, to disillusionment. When your expectation is contradicted by your experience of suffering, imagine sitting down with a couple who recently lost a kid to cancer. And that couple tells you, you know, I've prayed, we prayed night and day for God to heal our kid. And he did not come through. What are you going to say to them? Well, if you have an imbalanced faith, you're going to say, well, the only logical thing you can say if you're honest is, well, if you, you just didn't have enough faith. Are you really prepared to give that type of counsel to someone? That's the counsel of an imbalanced faith. That's the counsel of an unbiblical faith. That's the counsel of someone who reads verses 32 through 35 and then stops and doesn't bring it full circle to say, no, a life of faith, a faith imbalance recognizes that, yes, God can and does work miracles in people's lives, and we can see him do wonderful things in our lives and in the lives of others, but at the same time, we don't go there to the neglect of the other side of grace recognizing that not every story of faith, the script of every story of faith runs in that direction. Not every story of faith ends with an immediate triumph. A lot of stories of faith end in, end in apparent tragedy. Apparent tragedy, apparent suffering, apparent death. I think this is the shift you need to identify in verse 35. Notice again in verse 35, there's a shift that happens in that verse and it brilliantly balances the record of God's activities on behalf of all of those who live by faith in him. Where you have these, these moments of triumph, and now he turns his attention to apparent tragedy. Notice it again in verse 35. It says, many women received back their dead by resurrection. This is a reference to a couple of women in First and Second Kings. A couple of women who lost their children and the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha was used by God to bring their, kid back to, their kids back to life. It was a wonderful moment worth celebrating. But notice in the very next breath, the very next breath, he says, but then there were some who were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Some women received back their dead by resurrection. Others did not. That some there is referring to other women, other mothers who did not experience the immediate triumph of God in that same way. No, their story of faith seems to have ended in apparent tragedy. 
And what I think is going on here is I think what's being alluded to in this passage are some events that happened between the close of the Old Testament and the open of the New Testament. If you know, if you know anything about how the Testaments work, when the Old Testament ended, there were about 40 years or 400 years passed before the events of the New Testament started. And within that 400-year window, lots of bad things happened to the people of Israel. They found themselves attacked and mistreated, brutally persecuted by tyrants. There was one guy by the name of Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he invaded Israel, and he conquered Israel, and he oppressed Israel. And what he decided to do was try to stomp out the faith of Israel. And so he would bring prominent members of families uh, into the town square, and he would challenge them, say, I want you to denounce your faith, disobey your God. If you do not, you will die. And before you die, you're going to suffer. And he would bring people out, and he would threaten them in this way. And, and if they did not denounce their faith, they would, be, they would be tortured and killed as an object lesson to everyone else who was watching. Now, the most famous story that was coming out of that came out of that time, it concerned a believing mother, a believing mother who had seven sons. And this is pretty gruesome, but I think it's worth sharing. And each one of her sons was brought out into the public square and They were told to denounce their faith, and they refused to do so. And as a result, she witnessed all of her sons. The story goes that they had their tongue cut out and then systematically had their limbs chopped off, only to then move to being scalped. And after they were scalped, they were thrown into a fire and roasted in front of everyone. This mother witnessed that happen to all seven of her sons. That's not an immediate triumph. That's an apparent tragedy, right? And so when you read a book that was written during that 400-year time frame, there's one called Second Maccabees, and it records some of these events and some of these happenings. And, and it tells us what, what the woman or the mother was saying to her sons when all of this was going down. And this is what we read. She was standing on the sidelines saying, I do not know. Get, listen to how she's championing their faith in God. She said, I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set in order the elements within each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world who shaped the beginning of man and devised the origin of all things will in his mercy, get this, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again. God's sustaining grace empowering her faith in that moment to believe that God was still good and that God would still win even though in that immediate instance each one of her sons were slaughtered. That's the flip side of grace. That's the balance we need in our faith that God's sustaining grace enabling us to endure suffering, enabling us to walk through lows in a way that we're not left there or in a way that we're not thinking, well, this low bar in my life is suddenly going to be everything for eternity, but no, looking to the promised future that God has in store for us. And in her instance, what was she thinking about? She was thinking about resurrection. She was looking beyond the suffering of her sons to a better day. She was looking beyond to that which was promised, and she believed that resurrection was coming. That's remarkable faith being sustained by the same grace of God that had empowered Samson against the Philistines. The same grace of God that enabled David to conquer Goliath. It's the same faith operating in this woman who was suffering egregiously. 
And not just her, but all the others who would be described. Just read it again in verse 36. The writer goes on, Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. I love this phrase. About all of them, (laughs) the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy to have men and women of this kind of faith in the, in, to be present in the world. And then the writer goes on. They were wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They, they suffered much. They suffered much. You see, not, all story of, not every story of faith experiences immediate triumph. Lots of stories of faith end in apparent tragedy. And the difference between those two is not the quality of the faith of those involved. The mother did not suffer much because her faith was inferior to David's. You are not suffering much because your faith is not inferior, is somehow inferior to those who aren't suffering at this stage in their journey. You are not in a low season because your faith isn't approved by God. And this is where we get into the mystery of who God is and his sovereignty and his wisdom and his purposes. Understand that that, that what determines the difference between those who experience immediate triumph and those who endure apparent tragedy, it's not the quality of the faith involved. It's all tied to the mystery of God's ways the mystery of his wisdom, the mystery of his goodness. I can't explain the ways of God. I don't know why he heals some and doesn't heal others. If anyone tells you they do know, they're lying to you. And they are not balanced in their faith. I cannot explain the mysterious ways of God in the world that is on behalf of his people. But I can tell you that no matter what you're going through, whether it's a high season or a low season, Whether it's a high moment or a low moment, in each and every circumstance, God is still better than all of it. And the future that is awaiting you is going to transcend your highest high in this world. And the future that God has in store for you will transform the lowest low in this world. That's what a balanced faith realizes and recognizes. That's the type of faith that can't be capsized. It's the type of faith that can't be pulled apart and turn over in this, in this world. So when you get into verse 38, he t- the corner turns in verse 39, and listen how it ends. The writer then goes on in all of these, meaning everyone, those who experienced prosperity, those who experienced adversity, all of them, though commended through their faith, meaning they were all commended, those who won and those who seemed to have lost. They were all commended through their faith, but still they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect, meaning God had a much bigger plan in mind. He was writing a much bigger story that would involve their little stories, but he was writing a much bigger story that would encompass and involve all of his people across all of time and space. These people who would be brought together through the person and the work of Jesus when he would step into the world and live, die, rise again. These people that he would bring together and draw them into the white-hot enjoyment of the betterness of God. 
those who would recognize that God is better than the best parts of life in this world. God is better than the worst parts of life in this world. That's what all of these men and women had in common. They were looking for the fulfillment of God's promises. And you know, because we've said this week in and week out, that all the promises of God find their yes where? They find their yes in Jesus meaning every promise that God made, it is fulfilled in Jesus. Every promise that God makes to us, we, it is intended to draw us to Jesus so that we fix the eyes of our faith in Jesus. And when we fix the eyes of our faith on Jesus, what happens? When we're looking at Jesus, our faith begins to find balance because we are forever, te- forever trusting, as we're looking at Jesus, we're forever trusting in the betterness of God, in the ultimate superiority of God to each and everything we have in this life. Whether, it's, whether your life is one characterized by prosperity, or your life is characterized by adversity, a balanced faith recognizes, recognizes that Neither prosperity nor adversity can sully the superiority of Jesus in your life. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? Well, we let this passage give shape to our life of faith so that we're not knocked off balance in a world full of imbalance. We're not knocked off balance in a church that at times can be full of imbalance as people tend to drop the accent too hard on prosperity or too hard on adversity and they take our eyes off of the one who lived and died and rose again for us. So, so how do we respond to this? Well, we fix our eyes on Jesus and we walk by faith believing that the future Jesus has in store for us will transcend the highest highs of this life and transform the lowest of lows in this life. And we journey by faith through the world that is en route to that world that is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we consider these realities tonight? I ask that your Holy Spirit would take them and massage them deep into our souls. I pray that if our faith in any discernible direction is currently imbalanced. I pray that you would square it up and that you would fix it upon the person and the work of Jesus, the fulfiller of all of your promises, the one that we are drawn to, the one that we are saved by. God, would you give grace to fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you minister to us over these next couple of moments? Would you encourage us if we're suffering? God, would you help us be grateful when we're somewhat prosperous or maybe experiencing a good season right now, God, would you give us grace to be grateful for that? God, whatever the case may be, I pray that you would bring balance to our faith and that you would minister to each one of us accordingly. God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.